Balls. He's a libertarian in chief. This is the libertarian chief chat. Just a libertarian chit chat with the chief. Oh, hey, I'm Kevin. I'm here too. All right. Welcome to Chief Chats with Kevin Hobby and Todd Nagopian. I'm Kevin Hobby. And I'm Todd Nagopian. And we have a fantastic guest for you guys today. We are doing an issue podcast on school choice. So we have none other than Corey DeAngelis. Corey, you want to give a quick intro? Hey, yeah. Thank you so much for the short introduction. But I'm also the director of school choice at the Reason Foundation, an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute and executive director at the uh, Educational Freedom Institute. I could also go around a little bit of a background how I got into Liberty, if you'd like. Uh, yeah, right let's now. run through that. We like to take that path to Liberty. Yeah, um, so as listeners probably know, and as you guys both know already, my main topic is uh, something that most people call school choice. It's something that I've started to talk about more as funding students as opposed to institutions, having the same money that would have been allocated to the residentially assigned government-run school go to the family and then allow the family to choose where to allocate those education dollars for their children, either to a public school or a private school or a charter school or a home school-based options. And there's a lot of different ways of structuring that, but the main idea is funding students instead of systems. And so what really got me interested in this at first was uh, I went to government-run schools all through K through 12 education uh, so if I make any mistakes today, it's because of that uh, government-run school education <laughs> that I had to endure. But through high school, I actually had the option to go to something called a magnet school. It's still a government-run institution run by the school district, uh, but it's a school of choice in that you're not residentially assigned to magnet schools. So it's a public school of choice. And uh, I saw the clear differences in uh, that school and the school that I was residentially assigned to. And I think that's had a positive impact on my life. And so I think that's important to expand those types of opportunities to uh, younger generations as well. Uh, but I also did my bachelor's and master's in economics in San Antonio, Texas, University of Texas at San Antonio. And it really started to wake me up and open my eyes even more so to the real problems with K through 12 education in the United States, which really results from monopoly power. You're residentially assigned to a particular institution. And in general, you have to send your child to that institution regardless of how well it meets their needs. And if you wanna do something else, it's really costly to do so. So there's high transaction costs associated with leaving that option, which leads to that monopoly power. And that's also partially created through compulsory uh, property taxes. If you wanna to go to a private school, you essentially have to pay twice, once out of pocket for the private school and then once through the property tax system for the traditional public school. With school choice, it really changes that incentive structure up and changes the power dynamic in that you don't have to pay twice if you wanna uh, uh, choose another school. Uh, the money would follow the child to the educational provider that works best for them. Again, that could be the public school if they want, but it could also be a charter or a private or a homeschool-based uh, option or even things like micro schools or pandemic pods. I'm I can go into details on all of those if you'd like, but um, just to let listeners know, there are lots of different options of, of where this could go. And then after my uh, uh, bachelor's and master's in economics, I went into a PhD program at the University of Arkansas, where I really started to study uh, school choice programs, particularly the one in Milwaukee. It's uh, known as the longest standing modern day voucher program in the United States. 
the idea of the voucher is you're residentially assigned to a traditional public school. And if that doesn't work for you, that same public funding or taxpayer funding follows the student to a private school to pay for tuition and fees. So my earliest research looked at how that program affected criminal activity uh, and voter behavior as well. Um, and then after researching, I got into the think, think tank world at Cato uh, Institute first, and then now at Reason Foundation. So it's probably a two a super long introduction, but I was hoping to get the audience more familiar with my background. And yeah, I'm happy to talk about any more details you guys want to get into. No, that's really good. Um, I'm the Milwaukee plan. Let's talk a little bit more about that, uh, just so the reader or the listeners and myself uh, can understand more. When you say that they, they already have it set up so that the tax dollars follow the child, how much, like, let's say I'm paying $3,000 in property tax a year. Is it $3,000 or is it a percentage of that $3,000 that would have gone towards schools? Do you know what I mean? How do yeah, they do so, that? So, so I should set this up by explaining the different types of school choice, and then I'll get into Milwaukee really quickly. So I listed off, I rattled off a bunch at the beginning, but in the traditional system, you, in general, in the United States and in places like Wisconsin and other states and in Oklahoma, you live in a particular residence and you're assigned to a, a school just based on where you live. And that school gets your taxpayer dollars uh, regardless of how well it meets your needs and whether you're really actually satisfied with that school. With the voucher program, which is the idea that was put forth by Milton Friedman in 1955 in his essay, The Role of Government in Education, at the preface that though by saying Milton Friedman was the, fir the first person to discuss vouchers. We had voucher programs in America, in Maine and Vermont and New Hampshire in the 1800s. John Stuart Mill talked about vouchers in chapter three of On Liberty. Uh, Thomas Paine talked about vouchers in on uh, the rights of man. Uh, so this has been around much longer than Milton Friedman. But the basic idea of the voucher argument is our idea is that the money that would have went to your traditional public school would instead go follow the child to whatever private school uh, they would like to attend uh, that participates in the program. So you could take it to a private school, but in the voucher program, you, you wouldn't be able to use that for home-based education, for example, in general. So voucher programs are, they take that same public or taxpayer funding that would have went to the school and attaches it to the child. Uh, and it depends on the program how much that is. Um, so in some places, you know, in, in Maryland, next close to where I live, they have something called the Boost Voucher Program. It's for low-income students, and it's only about $2,000 uh, per student for that voucher. Whereas in the public schools, they spend like 10 times that amount, you know, like eighteen dollars to $20,000 in like Baltimore uh, public schools. In DC, for example, they have a voucher program. DC public schools spend over $31,000 per child per year. And the voucher amount is only about nine to $10,000 per child. So they're typically funded a lot less than what you would have gotten in the public school, just because that's how politics work. I would argue a lot more than that should follow the child, but uh, this creates benefits to the taxpayer. Um, uh, it creates benefits to the family because the family has the choice to use that money or not, they could stay in their public school with the higher per pupil expenditure if they'd like, but if it's not working, they're allowed to take that money, a portion of it at least elsewhere. And then it creates benefits to the public school. 
the traditional public school or government school gets to keep some of the money. And so what's interesting here, and I have to hit on one of the biggest myths in the school choice debate is people will say that school choice or charter schools defunds public schools or steals money from the public schools to which I respond that that's absolutely ridiculous because school choice doesn't defund public schools. The public schools defund the families. School choice initiatives just return that money to the hands of the rightful owners, which happens to be the families and the students. The money doesn't belong to any particular institution, public or private. The education dollars are supposed to be meant for educating the child, not for propping up and protecting a particular government monopoly. So that, but that's politically how it works out. It tends to be a lot less than what was spent in the traditional public school. But in Milwaukee, I think that th that program is actually pretty well funded. Uh, it's not the same amount as what you would have gotten in the traditional public school. I think it's much higher than half though. I think it's like two thirds to three quarter or even more. Uh, to, uh, so it's um, uh, one of the better programs when it comes to uh, the funding levels relative to the traditional public school. Charter schools, I get this question a lot. What are charter schools? Because you know, most states have charter schools. I think 47 states plus DC have charter school laws in place. These are kind of, on paper, they're public schools. By definition in state, um, according to State Department of Education and the Federal Department of Education, charter schools are public schools by definition. But I kind of think of them as quasi-public private schools. They're public in the sense that they're publicly funded or taxpayer funded. They're regulated by the government. They, um, uh, a lot of the times they uh, are authorized by the government to, to, to the school districts oftentimes get to determine whether they, that they can open or not. Uh, but they are allowed to be privately managed. So that's where um, it gets kind of uh, confusing for some. They're privately managed, but they're highly government regulated. Uh, but not as regulated as government-run schools or traditional public schools, some people call them. Um, so that's, that's the charter school option. There are also things called tax credit scholarships. So the voucher program is easy to explain. The money that would have went to the public school follows the child, the same public dollars to a uh, private school of their choosing. Tax credit scholarship is the same type of idea where if you, where uh, corporations, individuals, and uh, and others can donate to something called a scholarship granting organization. And families can go to that scholarship granting organization to get scholarships to go to a private school. Uh, so it's private dollars still because the money never entered the tax collector's hands. So you get a tax credit for making that donation. It remains private. It tends to be less regulated, but these programs tend to be um, uh, uh, smaller in size because they rely on these voluntary donations from corporations and individuals. But it's the same kind of idea. It's just a different way to fund it, tends to be less regulated. And then lastly, I'll leave you with the education savings account. I think this is the best way to, to, to do school choice going forward. Uh, in Georgia, for example, legislators just recently uh, proposed a, an education savings account that's getting a lot of traction on social media right now. The idea here, it's kind of like the voucher, uh, the money that would have went to the traditional public school for your student would follow them instead of the, in a form of a voucher, it would be an education, it would go into an education savings account directed by the family. That money could be used to pay for private school tuition and fees like you would do with a voucher, but it could also be used for a bunch of other 
private providers of, of educational services, such as tutoring. You can use it for curriculums and textbooks. You can use it for home-based education. You can use it for uh, micro schools, which are kind of like a one-room schoolhouse where you get five to 10 children together in a household to kind of economize on the task of homeschooling. It's kind of, micro schools are kind of the, an in-between, I would think, between, uh, I would say between homeschooling in the pure sense and uh, private schooling. Uh, it's kind of like a miniature private school. Uh, and then also pandemic pods, which um, are almost synonymous with uh, micro schools, but not exactly. But you could use the money for all of these different types of government approved education ex expenditures. A lot of people ask, well, what if the people just waste it on um, other things that are not education related? To which I quickly, I, I initially respond that, well, they waste money in the public schools too. Uh, I would imagine that the parents have more information and incentives to spend that money wisely than the government bureaucrats sitting in offices hundreds of miles away. But that said, all of these education savings account programs have the provision in them that you must spend the money on a government approved education expenditures. So that's, that was probably a long winded answer as well, but um, we got plenty of time, so. <laughs> yeah, no, that was good. Going back to this tax credit one, um, what did you call that again? There's a it's called tax credit scholarship. It's um, it's like a voucher, okay. but it's privately funded rather than uh, uh, taxpayer funded. And so tax credit implies if I if I as an individual owed a thousand dollars in in taxes, I could decide to put it into this thing, and then I can put it give them a thousand dollars. I owe a thousand dollars less in local taxes. Is that right? Yep. Yep. So if you give the money that would have gone to the tax collector to a scholarship granting organization, right. uh, you reduce your tax, your tax burden. So there's an incentive. To okay, do and, so. there's, and there's different amounts. There's, there, it goes all the way up to a dollar for dollar credit, but then there's other yeah. bills that have it less than a dollar for dollar credit. Yeah. So you could okay. have an 80. But if I was, let's say I was a rich, a uh, rich couple that didn't have kids. I could direct my dollars that way too, or it only works for folks who have kids. Because he said there, there is something uh, there is something called the tax credit deduction too, um, which I usually don't think of as a school choice program per se. But there is there are there are these um, um, in certain states where if if you are sending your kid to a private school, you can write those expenses off on your taxes. So that's one way to do it. But what I'm referring to with the scholarship granting organization is is you donate pretty much to this organization. Um, yeah, and, it, and it's I not think I I think I said it wrong. Um, if I was a a homeowner <clears throat> inside of this municipality and I did not have any children, could I give my tax dollars to the tax credit um, the same way a parent could? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yeah, you could donate. So that doesn't matter. So that's the only yeah. option that you outlined um, that basically allows non-parents to direct their dollars where mm -hmm. they want. Okay. Yep. And yeah, with the voucher and stuff, I mean, it's uh, yeah, it's it's more family centered. The family is the one who de yeah. decides where the money goes. Um, uh, yeah, that's that's. Uh, and some people really like the tax credit scholarship option. I, when I first got into the movement, preferred tax credit scholarships to voucher programs because I was really skeptical about regulations. 
but then there's a cost to having the tax credit scholar. There's a cost to relying on donations. There's lots of costs. One is you don't, you can't tap into as much as many resources. And then two, uh, uh, some of these programs have shown issues with relying on the, uh, the, the whims of corporate donors. In Florida, for example, uh, just last year, there was a couple, there was the, the media, uh, one of the, one of the uh, newspaper outlets out there and some lawmakers were trying to paint the tax credit scholarship program, a school choice program out there in Florida as being quote unquote anti-LGBTQ. And the, the, the newspaper made this whole thing about how, well, there's some private schools that are religious and, and do you want your money going to these religious schools that, that they're saying are anti-LGBTQ? And so uh, what do you do as a, as a corporate you know, uh, entity when you start getting these emails about this? They didn't want to deal with the pushback, so they pulled their money out. Some of them put their money back into the program after they figured out that you know, this program actually is really helpful. Giving LGBTQ students more choices is not a bad thing for them. There's a there's a, a story in the Washington Examiner about how an LGBTQ student in Florida uh, mentioned that they that the program actually saved their life because they were experiencing so much bullying in the traditional public school. Um, so, given given an LGBTQ student an additional option is not harmful to them. It's it's helpful, and and uh, some of the evidence that I brought to the table during that discussion as well was that. Uh, one of these LGBTQ uh, groups, I think it was GLS, I'll send you, I'll send you the survey, but they did a, a, a national survey in 2017, and they found that overall that the LGBTQ students in private schools reported a better environment compared to the public schools uh, nationwide. Um, and, and so <laughs> giving them options uh, is not hurtful to them. And then other people in the discussion pointed out that, look, you know, most of the students using this program are uh, minority students and also low-income students. I think the average household income of a student using that Florida Tax Credit Scholarship Program, which was a, is a program that serves over 100,000 students, their average household income was about $27,000. And so, uh, the response to the me to the media that I had and others was to say that look, um, uh, this you know pulling options away from these students is not helping them and it's not helping all of these other groups of students either. Uh, and and so, but that's a long way of saying that you know something in the media like that could defund the program uh, programs that are already have trouble going to scale because they rely on donations. Instead, yeah. I think the simpler way is just, you already have the money in the system, taxpayer allocated dollars. The money is for the student instead of buildings. Uh, the whole point of education funding is to have an educated populace. It's to educate the individual students. Uh, why not let it to follow them to whatever institution works best for them? It's easier to explain these publicly funded programs and it doesn't, take a change in the tax code to do so. Um, and it can scale a lot, a lot easier. There's, you know, we, we spend uh, over $740 billion on K through 12 education each year uh, in the United States in, in, the, in the public school system alone. You're not gonna, you're not gonna get that much in donations. 
through tax credit scholarship programs. Right, right. Right, yeah. And I wanted to hit on something else that I didn't finish my response to the myth that I set up for myself, the uh, school choice defunds public schools. There's a lot of responses to that. The one that I was setting up earlier was that, you know, the public schools actually get to keep a lot of the money, right? Um, because even though public schools are funded based on enrollment counts, they're not totally funded based on enrollment counts. They uh, are funded based on block grants and all types of other uh, funding, but it's not completely based on students. So in Texas, for example, only about two thirds of the funding is based on student enrollment. So what that means mathematically is when a student leaves a public school to go to a private school, either by paying out of pocket or through a voucher program, the public school gets to keep about a third of the resources for students who are no longer there. Just imagine if after leaving Walmart to go to Trader Joe's, for example, if Walmart got to keep a third of your grocery bill each week, they'd be really happy with that scenario. And I argue that the public school should similarly be happy that they get to keep any money at all for students that are no longer, who are no longer there. Uh, my other response is that, you know, uh, if your initial reaction to giving families a choice is that, oh, no, my product is going to be defunded, what does that tell you about your confidence in your product? Uh, why would giving families a choice defund public schools if you have confidence in public schools? The reality is the people that are saying these things know full well that there are a lot of families who are not satisfied with the services that they're getting in the traditional public school system. In fact, um, the latest surveys that I've seen, one from EdChoice and, and other uh, organizations, they consistently find that about 83% of students are in uh, government-run schools today. But when you ask them, well, if money were an issue, where would you send your school? A, a home school, a charter, a private? Only about uh, less than half of the students who are currently in government-run schools say that they would still be there. So if we had a universal system where the money followed the child, we would probably expect to see a lot of schools lose a lot of students. Uh, there would probably be a mass exodus from the public school system, which, me which means uh, a draining of a lot of resources. Uh, and so I think this is why the teachers unions are so fearful of these types of initiatives. They know one, that they're not doing a good job and two, that families would choose an alternative uh, to their school. And this doesn't mean that all public schools are bad. This doesn't mean that all private schools are, are better than public schools. All it means is that a one size fit all, fits all system cannot work for unique individual students. The public school may be the best option for, for millions of kids. Um, and I think that option should, should still be on the table. But if that doesn't work and it's not the right fit for an individual child, they should be able to take that money to an alternative, another public school maybe uh, that they're not residentially assigned to, maybe a charter school or a private school or a home-based setting. Um, I'm in, I, I don't care what you choose, but I, I feel like people should have that choice. Yeah, I agree. Um, so talking about that competition, there's a stat that you bring up and I'm going to butcher it, but you'll... <laughs> um, Public schools perform better when a private or a charter school is introduced, right? Yep, yep. Yeah, there's, this is probably the clearest strand of research in the uh, school choice debate. And you know, this is another myth in the debate. People will say that, you know, uh, yeah, of course it benefits the kids who are using the programs because they chose it. But what about the least advantaged students who are left behind in the traditional public schools? 
you know, this is going to lead to inequities. This is kind of two myths bundled into one. My quick response to that is that advantaged families already have choice. During the pandemic, when schools uh, closed their doors for in-person instruction, at least the public schools, the private schools were open, and advantaged families were able to access that in-person instruction. Advantaged families were more likely to be able to pay for pandem pandemic pods and micro schools out of pocket. The students who were uh, faced with no options were the least advantaged, and that's the one stuck in the traditional public school system absent a school choice program. So. Funding students directly would actually lead to more equity by allowing less advantaged families to access these alternatives of types of education as well. Um, so school choice is an equalizer. It shouldn't be a partisan issue. But then also related to this is they'll, yeah, they'll argue that the least advantaged will stay in the public schools. Another, another thing though is that advantaged families don't, don't only have the resources to, fund, to, to pay for private schools out of pocket. They also are more likely to be able to afford a residence that is assigned to the better public schools. Public schools aren't equal, no matter how many times people will try to tell you that. Um, there's a reason why uh, so many families trying to get their kids into better public schools have actually been fined or even sent to jail for lying about their resident, re their addresses to get their kids into better public schools. That's not an equal system. Um, so we can't say that the status quo is an equalizer. I think it's the opposite. Residential assignment doesn't lead to more equity. Funding students directly actually does lead to more equity. But there are 20, 27 studies on this topic that have been compiled by EdChoice in a report called the 123s of School Choice. And 25 of the 27 studies on the topic find that when private school choice competition comes into play, the public school performance actually gets better. So in this sense, school choice is a rising tide that lifts all boats. You don't even have to use the programs to benefit from it because the public schools start to think a little bit, right? They start to realize that if they don't do a good job, that they're going to lose some of their students and some of the funding that goes along with those students. So they start to, they start to cater to the needs of the individual families. So school choice is good for the students in the public schools and the students who are using the programs uh, directly because of those competitive pressures. And then related to this is that school choice benefits teachers too. There's this, this other conversation that goes on that school choice, if you're, if you're for school choice, one, they'll say that you're anti-public school, which is absolutely ridiculous. It's, it's, it's almost like saying that, you know, allowing someone to choose their grocery store is anti-Safeway. Why would anybody say that? Uh, I, I could, I could one be totally uh, in favor of, allowing people to choose where they shop and then actually still want to shop at Safeway. How would, how would that be anti-Safeway? Similarly, allowing families to choose their school is an anti-public school. But on a related note, people will say that um, school choice is anti-public school teacher. But look at what the unions have done for individual school teachers and just look at the data over time. Uh, ben Scafferty from Kennesaw State University has showed the trends on this in a couple of reports. The latest one looked at data from 1992 to 2014 in the United States and found that per pupil education expenditures actually increased in real terms after adjusted for inflation, adjusting for inflation by 27%. But real teacher salaries actually dropped after adjusting for inflation by 2% over the same time period. So we're throwing more and more money into the system. It's not going into indiv to individual teachers. It's not going to the classroom. It's going towards administrative bloat 
and surges in staffing. Another report uh, by Education Next looking at federal data in the United States found that between 2000 and 2017, the number of students in the system increased by about 7%. The number of teachers in the system increased by about the same rate, by about 8%. But the number of, a, uh, of administrative staff increased by about 10 times, over 10 times the rate of students by about 75%. Um, so what we're seeing is administrative bloat and staffing surges. And I think it's because of that monopoly power again. If you don't have an incentive to spend those additional dollars wisely, you're just going to build a bureaucracy and you're going to spend thing, money on things that benefit teachers union bosses. If you've put more and more people into the system, and more administrators, you get more union dues and you get a stronger voting block by having more power and numbers in the school system. But the money doesn't go to individual teachers, so we see flat salaries. And when we hear things about teachers complaining about salaries, I, I kind of feel bad for them because we do throw a lot of money into the school system, but they don't see a lot of it. And so when you hear them talking about things like paying out of pocket for school supplies, I think they're mostly right about that, but their anger should be directed towards the system and not their competition. And so five studies that I know of on the topic, every single one of them has found that either through charter school competition or private school competition, the public schools in response to that raise teacher salaries uh, for, their, for their teachers. So each of these five studies has found that school choice competition leads to higher teacher salaries in the public schools. And most people, you know, when you fir they first hear that, they, they, their knee-jerk reaction is to say, well, that doesn't make any sense. But it does once you start to think about the fact that monopolies don't have any particularly strong incentive to spend the money wisely. And then also, if you think about it from a monopsony standpoint, we all know what monopolies are, but monopsonies are essentially a monopoly in the labor market that there's essentially one big employer and that is the government run school system. And so teachers don't have all that much of choice either because they, they, they're, if you wanna go in to be a K through 12 educator, one of your only options for the most part that controls 90% of the market is the government run school system. And they have a pretty uniform set of benefits and, and, and pay, which are not really, they're usually not based on merit or performance. They tend to be based on just how long have you sat in the system, and even then, um, you know, it, 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 it's uh, not as it, with 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 how much we pour into the system. Uh, even if you've been in there for for a while, um, it you you can make an argument that uh, the teachers might need might might uh, have should should probably deserve a little more uh, of the pie. I mean, just think about in D.C. for example. You have like, let's say 30 students per class, $30,000 per student. Uh, you got almost a million dollars going to the classroom each year. And the teacher gets less than a tenth of that. They make about $80,000 per year in DC, for example. So um, yeah, I mean, uh, school choice is not anti-public school and it's not anti-teacher either. Uh, school choice actually improves the public schools through competition, and it could lead to higher teacher salaries at the same time. Some anecdotal, a little anecdotal story about that. So I enrolled my son. I moved to a particular part of the city that I was in in order to enroll my son in this charter school. And their charter was held by a local university instead of the local public school. 
right? So they had a little bit more lenience and things like that. Well, after his first year there, they, the university forfeited their charter. So their charter now went to the public school for the city. And when they came in, the first thing that they did was the teachers union complained and had a big deal and reduced the teachers' salaries at this charter school because they made so much more than the public school. And a lot of those teachers left and went to private schools. And then my son followed his teacher because she was going to this private school because of it. So they came in and basically gutted the teacher's salary, the local teachers union did, in order to bring it down to match what all the other schools were paying. And that was in Oklahoma, you said? Yeah. Yeah, so it depends on state. Um, and, you know, I, I've seen some evidence that charter schools actually pay less than traditional public schools. But um, that said, it depends on the location. And uh, part of the reason for that is because um, charter schools tend to get a lot less money on a per people basis than the traditional public schools. So my latest study on this out of the University of Arkansas, for example, using 2018 data, we looked at 18 different uh, cities and, and locations. And across those 18 cities, we found that the charter schools received about two thirds of the amount per student as the traditional public schools. It's kind of like the of what's going on with the voucher programs too. The voucher programs are underfunded. The charter schools are underfunded, at least relative to the traditional public schools. And But yeah, it varies by location. I, I believe Tulsa, Oklahoma was actually included in that study. And maybe the charters weren't as underfunded there as they were in other cities. It would be interesting to compare, you know, how the teacher salaries. Um, so uh, when they were going out. through the, I remember going to the school board meetings and they were saying that they got 60% of the funding that the public schools did. That was where this particular one was. Yeah. So they're really um, cutting costs somewhere else. You know, maybe, uh, uh, maybe they don't pay, spend as much money on uh, football stadiums. And, and I think that the deal that they got, and, yeah. Well, they didn't have, they, they did their, they didn't have any athletics and they also, the building was donated to them because that was another thing when the school, when the public school came in now, even though the building was donated to them by a local energy company, now that charter school has to pay rent to Oklahoma city public schools on a building that Oklahoma city public schools doesn't own. That makes sense. Yeah, total. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, another thing I, I, I like to point out in every episode and pretty much that I'm ever on, uh, Kevin, you probably get sick of this since we probably talked about this last time, but uh, I compare um, funding the student directly to a lot of other programs that some libertarians may not be too friendly uh, uh, with, um, but the idea here is that all of these other programs that I'm about to bring up I'm not saying this program or that program is a good program or what we should expand it or reduce it. I'm, I'm not taking a, taking a stance on what, on good or bad, but I think everybody, unless you're the teachers unions can agree that if the money is going to be allocated from the taxpayer, allocated from the taxpayer, that it should go to people instead of government run school buildings or, or institutions period regard, you know, dependent upon the industry. So for example, with education, we already do fund students directly, but when it comes to higher education, we have something called the Pell Grant for low-income students. We have the GI Bill for veterans. In those situations, we don't say that 
if you're going to use this money, if you're going to use this Pell Grant, you got to use it as a, at a residentially assigned or nearby community college that's run by the government. We don't say that. We don't do the same that with um, GI Bill either. That money goes to the student, and the student can rightly choose to take the money to the community college if they want, or a private state university. But they can also take it to uh, uh, public or or private universities of their choosing, religious or non-religious universities of their of their choosing. Same thing with pre-K programs. Um, with pre-K programs, including the federally federally funded. Um, Head Start program and other state level programs uh, in many states, the funding doesn't go to a government residentially assigned daycare center or pre-K center. The money goes to the family and the family can choose the public provider if they want, or they can take the money to a private provider of the service. I'm just arguing we should do the same thing when it comes to K-12 education. And what's interesting to me is a lot of the people who support funding the student directly when it comes to higher education and, and, and pre-K, they get all up in arms when it comes to K-12 education, even though the logic is the same. So I got to thinking about this for a while, and the only difference that I can come up with as to why you would be for one of these at higher funding the students directly when it comes to higher education and pre-K, but not K-12, is that the power dynamics differ. Choice is the norm when it comes to higher education and pre-K. But the norm when it comes to K through 12 in the in-between years is that there's an entrenched special interest that profits from getting your children's education dollars, regardless of the choice made by the individual family. I mean, just imagine if we were residentially assigned to pre-Ks too, and money just went to a government-run institution. You would, I would be pretty, I wouldn't be surprised if a, a lot of the people who don't support school choice at the K to 12 level relative to that status quo wouldn't support it when it comes to pre-K either because of those power dynamics. Um, and similarly, we have food stamps. For example, food stamps, we don't tell low-income families that they must use their food stamps at government re residentially assigned government-run grocery stores. I think most people would find that absolutely ridiculous. Instead, Rightfully, what we do is we have the money go to individual families, and the families can take the money to the provider of their choosing, Walmart, Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, um, and we fund the families directly instead of a partic any particular institution. Uh, similarly, we have Medicaid dollars that can be used at private hospitals. We have um, Social Security dollars go to people, um, and... Uh, we have Section 8 housing vouchers that can be used, that allocated by individuals, and on and on and on. There's tons of examples of this. Um, but what, yeah, what, just what's really interesting to me is how a lot of people who support all of these other things don't support funding students directly or people directly when it comes to K through 12 education. Uh, so I'm just calling for the same thing. Let's fund the fund the students directly and empower the families to choose the best provider. You, you didn't make my favorite argument in it. So what do you say to people that say that we can't send public dollars to religious institutions, religiously run yeah. schools? Yeah, oh yeah, school choice is unconstitutional, they say. Uh, well, I mean, there's a lot of responses that you kind of hinted at the first response. Well, we have private public dollar, quote unquote, public dollars that can be used at private. I mean, the union groups all say this, right? They'll say public funds for public schools. Okay, well, are you are you against pre-K programs and Pell Grants too? No, they're not, obviously not, because it doesn't threaten their monopoly. Uh, are you against food stamps? Food stamps are, quote unquote, public dollars that can be used at private grocery stores. Oh, my goodness. Um, oh, and you could use that money 
uh, for food that can be ultimately consumed at a religious ceremony. Uh, so that must be unconstitutional. Oh, social security dollars. Those are public taxpayer dollars. They went into the tax collector's hands. So by definition, they are quote unquote public dollars, but they can be used to private institutions. They can even be used to donate money to churches directly. They can even be used to fund private religious K through 12 education. Um, Pell grants can be used at private universities. GI bill can be used at private universities. Pre-K programs can be used at private providers of daycare services or, or pre-K services. Um, and, and another response to the unconstitutionality, I mean, I think that's the most basic response. Uh, we have all these other things. Why, aren't you have, why don't you have a problem with that? I mean, the, the, the main reason for this is as to why all these other things are not unconstitutional when it comes to uh, violating the uh, establishment clause of the uh, US Constitution is that the, the primary beneficiary of all of these programs, including private school choice programs, is the family, not the school. The money goes to the person when it comes to Pell Grants, for example, and the person can take, they have a choice in the matter. They can go to public or private universities, religious or non-religious universities. When it comes to uh, K through 12 voucher programs, it's the same thing. The money goes to the family, the primary beneficiary, and the, the, the family can determine where to, uh, where to allocate those dollars. It's not a direct subsidy from the government to the church or from the government to a religious private school. But even in that case, there are Supreme Court cases such as the Tr Trinity Lutheran case from, a, case from a couple of years ago that find that taxpayer dollars can go directly from um, uh, the, 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 the government or the taxpayer to private religious schools if it's not used, if the grant is not used for religious purposes. Uh, so I, I would uh, recommend looking up the Trinity Lutheran case for uh, the listeners from a couple of years ago. It, it had to do with playground mulch. The, the Trinity Lutheran school uh, applied for a state grant to get playground mulch, and the state said, no, that's, uh, you know, that, 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 uh, that's unconstitutional because you're a religious school. And then so the religious school said, well, well you're, you're uh, discriminating against us for being religious. And we're not using this for a religious purpose. It's, it's playground mulch. And so the Supreme Court of the United States ruled in favor of Trinity Lutheran. I think, I don't remember the ruling on that case. But there's another case from 2002 that did deal with a private school voucher program uh, in Ohio. This is the Zelman versus Simmons-Harris case where um, the, the constitutionality, same, same argument was, was being applied as, as to whether you could use these quote unquote public dollars for private religious schools in Ohio in the voucher program. And they ruled five to four in favor of families that this was um, uh, constitutional uh, because, and, and the, the reason for that again, was that the primary beneficiary was the family not the school and the family had a choice between public, private, religious, or non-religious. And most recently, um, Montana actually, uh, 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 their state Supreme Court in 20, this was, this was last year in 2020, they, um, their state Supreme Court uh, took a case after, after the, uh, their tax credit scholarship program was uh, nixed it was a private school choice program out in Montana. And the, the reason for that was they were saying it was because it violated their quote unquote, no aid clause, which is kind of like the same argument about uh, 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 
public dollars going to, to religious institutions. So they, they uh, shut down the whole program altogether. That went up to the Supreme Court of the United States, and they ruled 5-4 again with uh, Roberts, I believe, as the deciding vote uh, that, that that was unconstitutional because it violated the first the uh, free exercise clause of the First Amendment of religious families out there in Montana by nixing the whole program just because there were some private religious schools that were uh, using that families were using to, to, to attend because families were using the money to attend private religious schools in Montana. Uh, so what that essentially means is that uh, if you're going to have a private school choice program, you can't exclude private schools just based on the on on just because of the fact that they're religious. You could exclude them for other things. Maybe they don't adhere to another type of regulation or something. Um, but when it comes to their religious status, you can't discriminate against them based on that. Uh, that's a long-winded answer, um, but school choice is clearly constitutional from, from the precedent and then just basic logic. I mean, I think the be better argument, instead of saying, well, there's all this precedent, is we have all these other things that are public dollars that can be used at private schools or other religious, uh, ultimate, ultimately for other religious purposes. Right. Hey, Corey, I want to um, wrap up on two good, solid arguments that libertarians can make. Um, when they're having these discussions. Yep. And I think I've outlined two that I want to talk through. And then if you have others, we can tap into them right before we're done. Um, the first one is when you were talking about um, voucher programs and saying, you know, maybe 50% of the money will follow. And then, and then the school is actually better off because of it. I did some quick math on this and I just want to talk through it and see if this makes sense. So, so basically if uh, if a school district had 2,000 kids and it was 30,000 bucks a kid or whatever, um, like you said in DC, it doesn't really matter what the math is because uh, <laughs> it carries either way. But if even if a quarter of those kids left um, to go to another school, but half of their money stayed behind, what ends up happening in my math is that that school district ends up with 17% more dollars per kid. <laughs> because basically that that half that stays back um, and that they have a larger bucket with less kids. And so that school district, this mythical school, school district went from $30,000 per kid that they could spend up to $35,000 per kid that yep. they can spend. Is that essentially the scenario well, that you were laying out? Well, it depends on the state funding formula. And let, like, yeah, let's say, for example, it, it depends on how much of your funding is based on enrollment versus non-enrollment okay uh, because whether you leave for a private school voucher program or whether you leave for a charter school or or a private school paying out of pocket the fiscal effect on that's on the individual school district is identical which is pretty confusing for most people but just think about it when, when you lose a student you lose that money based on the enrollment count it doesn't have so much to do with with the voucher amount that what the voucher amount uh, ultimately affects is the taxpayer overall. Uh, and, and depending on how your funding formula works in the school district, you know, some of the benefit will go back to the school district, but some of the benefit will also go back to the taxpayer. And it depends on where you're at to, to what that mix is. So, but in most places, there is some, some benefit goes back to the school district for sure. That's why I say that they should be happy that they get to keep some of the money. But I, but uh, the, not 100% of that benefit accrues to the school district. Got it. Okay. 
Okay, but at the end of the day, the school district winds up with more money per pupil that's left rather than less. Yeah, I mean, and I, I, just to guess where you're going with this, it could almost be a perverse incentive to lose students. I'm going to do exactly. as, a, bad, yeah. a bad job as possible uh, so that I can, but the thing is, I mean, just they, the thing is they fight against these programs because they want to have 100% of the dollars for the students who are no longer there. Right. <laughs> that they get 20%, they say, oh, well, you know, oh, we have fixed costs. That's their argument, right? They'll say, oh, public schools have all these fixed costs to which I respond, well, every single business ever pretty much has fixed costs. That doesn't right. mean that when I leave Walmart, just because they got to keep the lights on and run electricity, that doesn't mean that they get to keep 20% of my grocery bill each week. It, it doesn't belong to them. Similarly, the education dollars don't belong to any particular institution. It belongs to the family and the student, or at least it should. And that's how it works with school choice programs. Um, but yeah, I mean, and, and what we're seeing uh, in opposition to this is that it does, I mean, I, I hear you. I, I, I've thought, thought about that argument that, you know, this is almost a perverse incentive to do a bad job. Um, but we haven't seen the schools respond in that way and, and, and try to like push out students. Um, you know, what we've seen is that from the competitive effects studies, at least, is that they've actually gotten better and done a better job. So maybe don't tell them that they're profiting uh, from, right. from, from losing <laughs> students. Maybe keep it a secret for now. Um, okay. We'll keep that a secret between us three and the four people that <laughs> listen to this podcast. So. <laughs> 4, um, the last one I wanted to ask you about is you and I met a uh, man, it must've been two years ago in a bar mm -hmm. and um and you laid out a pretty cool analogy that you touched on earlier, uh, but didn't uh, but didn't go all the way through. But I think the analogy itself about having the one fast food restaurant in the in your city, um, if you can go through that one more time for the audience, I think it's a great analogy for people to use. And sorry for putting you on yeah. the spot. I yeah, you know I'm going to try to remember our conversation from yeah. years back at a bar. <laughs> I but assumed it was an analogy. Yeah, uh, so used, let's but... tell me if I'm hitting this right, but um, yeah. you know. I mean, I've, I've already uh, used some analogies as it comes to uh, grocery stores and, uh, and restaurant, at, at least food stamps and having the, the money be portable. But I think I told, I told you something along the lines of, you know, imagine if you're residentially assigned to a particular restaurant that just happens to be nearby your house. The argument that I was laying out was that the restaurant wouldn't have any particularly strong incentive to do a good job. Uh, the reason that they do a good job uh, is that they understand that if they don't, you can take your money elsewhere. But in a, in a system where that you're residentially assigned to a restaurant, you had to move houses to get to another restaurant and had such high transaction costs associated with switching, the restaurant wouldn't have any particularly strong incentive to change for the better if they weren't doing a good job, especially if, if you paid out of pocket to go to another restaurant and the restaurant that you're residentially assigned to got to keep a lot of your money through the compulsory uh, property tax system. Uh, so we don't do that with, with grocery stores. We don't do this with uh, colleges. We don't do it with education at, in, at the college level or the pre-K level. We don't do it with private schools. People aren't residentially assigned to private schools. We don't do it with essentially any other industry. There's no reason why we need to do it with K-12 education unless you're trying to have a captive audience and to protect a monopoly in your system. Prop residential assignment leads to monopoly power, and that's a problem. 
it leads to lower quality and it's it, it, it's the worst it's the worst scenario for the least advantage because they're in the least well position to access alternatives because of those high transaction costs. That's right. And I think that really interesting thing, because uh, we went into a lot of detail on it, but the really interesting thing about the argument I thought was, let's say McDonald's was your only restaurant that you were allowed to go to because you were residentially assigned to it. And some nicer, you know, fast casual restaurant opened up nearby and suddenly you were allowed to go to it. What it does, what it would probably do is A, it would force McDonald's to raise its game a little bit. It would probably force the fast casual to compete from a price perspective. Both of them would be going after good employees. So wages would go up. And in a free market, these are all things that happen when competition is introduced. And so you could see the line of thinking where not only do you get better education, less fixed costs, and higher teacher salaries. You know what I mean? And you yep. get that all, you get that all just by introducing the second option, which I guess goes back to the point you made on public schools tend to do better when that option is introduced, not worse. Yeah, and one other thing I want to, while we're in the analogy space, is something that's really topical right now is the school reopening debate. There's, I mean, just look at the stark contrast between the private schools and the public schools. The private schools have been fighting to reopen, include and also all, all sorts of private businesses, restaurants and grocery stores. They've, they've even been open the whole time or they've been fighting to reopen, whereas public schools and so many teachers unions have been fighting for the opposite, to remain closed. And I think the difference there is one of incentives that one of the institutions or one of the sectors at least gets your money regardless of whether they open their doors for business. The private schools even took the fight to the Supreme Court in states like Kentucky. They took it all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States to fight to reopen. You had, you had private schools in Michigan going to the courts. You had private schools in other states as well taking the fight to the courts to try to reopen. Public schools were fighting for the opposite. And it's not because the people in the public school system are bad. It's the, the messed up incentive system structure that's, that's baked into the public school system. And it's not the people inside the system. It's just incentives that lead to uh, these types of fights. And the people who get the short end of the stick here are the families. And uh, you know, the way that I've put it is that if your grocery store didn't reopen throughout all of this, it wouldn't be a whole national conversation because you could take your money elsewhere. You could take your if your Walmart, if your nearest Walmart didn't reopen, you could take it to you could take your money to a different Walmart. You could take your money to Trader Joe's or Whole Foods. So it wouldn't be devastating. It would be inconvenient, but it wouldn't be devastating. Uh, and similarly, I think uh, this really ties into the school choice argument that if your school doesn't reopen, families should be able to take their children's education dollars elsewhere the same, in a similar way. Um, but but even then, even if the school did reopen, you should still have that choice to take your children's education dollars to the provider that works best for them, regardless of that reopening decision. But it's really topical right now because I think families are just waking up to this power imbalance that exists in the K-12 education system. It was always there, but COVID and the response that the public school system has had to this whole situation really puts a spotlight on that power imbalance. And I think families are scrambling right now and they're getting a bad deal and they know it. 
And the two latest national polls on this have found surges in support for funding students as opposed to institutions. For example, the latest Real Clear Opinion Research polling nationwide survey found that support for school choice has increased by 10 percentage points just since April uh, from 67% support to 77% report uh, support. And then also EdChoice has done a similar poll on this finding sharp increases in all types of school choice, charter schools, education savings accounts, tax credits, vouchers over the last year. And again, I think it's because families are looking at this scenario, they're seeing that they're getting a bad deal. That, you know, It's one thing for the schools to fail to educate their children every year, but it's another conversation altogether for the schools not even to open their doors and to still retain their children's education dollars while families are left scrambling for alternatives and having trouble right now. I think families are seeing that there's no good reason to fund institutions when you can fund students directly instead. So I think uh, 2021 might be the year for school choice. It was, uh, I mean, you made just, some great points there. I, I can only say, you know, my, we, I have two older boys that have been virtual schooled, you know, ever since March and are still virtual schooled. Um, and the teachers are great, you know, but the boys see them probably 90 minutes a day total. And my wife is doing, you know, the majority of the work at home beyond that. Um, and when you were talking education savings account, all I could think about is, holy crap, if we had 40,000 mm -hmm. bucks put into an education savings account, you know, we could lose that 90 minutes a day and she could do the whole thing. You know, I mean, that's a, I've never heard of the education savings account. I think that's a really interesting um, I, I think thanks. it's I, I think it's the best form of school choice going forward. It's yeah. almost like moving the conversation from school choice to education choice because you can use it on things that aren't brick and mortar schools. You can use it for right. virtual schools. You can use it for home home education. You can use it for online learning. Um, and yeah, when I talk about this reopening debate, I'm really just focusing on the incentives here. I don't care. You know, I I don't say that remote learning is better than. Or, or, or not better than in-person learning. I just want families to have that choice of in-person if it works best for their family. There's a lot of families that remote learning works, works well for their situation. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, an education savings account would help with this as well in that, especially if you're doing homeschooling, I mean, home, homeschoolers right now uh, in most states don't, don't get any of the money to follow the child in, in most places. There are five states that do have education savings accounts. And California actually has something that if you're enrolled in a virtual charter school, uh, a homeschool program through a virtual charter school in California, you get about two or $3,000 uh, per year to use uh, towards, towards homeschooling expenses. And Alaska has something similar called the Alaska homeschool allotment. But other than that, most, most homeschoolers don't get their children's education dollars to fund to follow them, but hopefully we'll see more of that going forward. And as I was saying, I think you know 2021 is going to be the year of school choice because COVID's you know COVID didn't break the school system. The school system was already broken. Uh, COVID simply illuminated and exposed the problems that were already there. And you know we've seen these support for school choice jump, but we're also seeing proposals in state legislatures right now. Uh, for um, education savings accounts and other forms of school choice. In Georgia, for example, recently, there's a bill that was recently introduced for education savings accounts. And 
one of the in the in the bill language they talked about how you know if your school wasn't open for in-person instruction you would be eligible and they had a whole bunch of different groups of students that would be eligible but one of the major groups was if your school wasn't open for in-person 100 percent uh, in-person instruction you'll be eligible for an education savings account and then uh, i recently also just found out that nebraska uh, just uh, uh, legislators over there i think 15 of them co-sponsored it pushing for a tax credit scholarship in their state. And then the Iowa governor in their state of a state address recently had a whole monologue supporting school choice and education savings accounts. And when she was talking about it, she talked about it in the context of, you know, look at what's happened this past year with the public schools not responding to uh, reopening for in-person where if you have all these private schools reopening for in-person. Um, so I think in Iowa, we'll see a push as well. And I think, uh, you know, this is, this is going to be big going forward. Critics might say, well, look, Joe Biden's going in, coming into office and he's not friendly to school choice, to which I will respond that, well, that Betsy DeVos didn't get uh, a federal school choice program while she was in office because of the, the split Congress. But then also, uh, you know, where school choice matters the most is actually at the state level anyway, because 92% of education funding at the K-12 level comes from state and local sources. Only about 8% of K-12 education funding comes from federal sources. So I would rather see momentum in the states than at the federal level anyway, because of one, federalism, but then two, because uh, that's where it matters the most. That's where you can get most of the resources. So 2021 is going to be the year for school choice. Let's go ahead and wrap let's, on that. Let's do that, yeah. Can you tell people where to find you? Also plug your book. Don't forget to plug yeah, your book. Yeah, cool. I was about to show it to the camera, but I just realized that uh, <coughs> this is a not a video podcast. But if you want to check out my book, it's uh, at the Cato Institute, uh, co-edited with uh, Neil McCluskey over there. It's called School Choice Myths, Setting the Record Straight on Education Freedom. We knock down some of the myths today, uh, but we go through, uh, and other authors as well, contributed chapters to this book. And there's 12 different myths that we knock down, um, including the ones that I talked about earlier in, in this discussion. Uh, you can find my work at the Reason Foundation website. If you just Google Corey Reason Foundation, you'll find me. And you can also follow me on Twitter at DeAngelis Corey. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This was great. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. Let's uh, keep in touch. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure.